Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World. This is episode 446. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. This is our penultimate episode of the year, and it will be our final chapter-by-chapter of the year. Actually, interestingly enough, as many of our listeners know, we started Order the Phoenix chapter-by-chapter way back in 2011. Episode 241 was our final chapter-by-chapter for book five, and it was Luna Lovegood, that chapter. (laughs) So... From this episode onward, it's going to be all new Order of the Phoenix chapter by chapter. <laughs> we actually have a confession. We've actually just been copying and pasting our notes from 2011. <laughs> That's what I was actually just docs. going to say, Andrew, that everybody thinks I've done such a great job planning these episodes, but really all I've done is go back to past Google Docs and copy paste over. You actually admitted a couple of weeks ago that uh, you just used points from... Mm-hmm. An old doc to us privately. Well, I, I, How dare you? Well, can you plagiarize yourself? I, so <laughs> no, I guess not. I would say that what I did was go in and take points that I thought would add to the great conversation that I had already created for last week's yes. episode. Yeah. Yes. So it's better than ever. Yeah. And there's value in revisiting the same topic 10 years apart. That's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. I did look at a couple of the notes from our old chapter by chapter Order of the Phoenix discussions, and we were basically doing the same thing. I mean, of course we are, because we're talking about the same chapter, so (laughs) (laughs) still had the same thoughts. Maybe we were a little wiser the second Mm -hmm. time. But anyway, we stopped doing Order of the Phoenix chapter by chapter back in 2011 for reasons we still do not recall. So this time, we're actually going to stick it out and complete it. By the way... Given that we are in the holiday season, I actually, with work, went out to volunteer yesterday. We do it every year, and uh, it was a lot of fun. We went to a third grade class, and we were tasked with building gingerbread houses. Now, you can imagine what it's like trying to build gingerbread houses with third graders. All they want to do is eat the gingerbread house materials, <laughs> and then they get all wired and you're with them for several hours. It's it's a great experience. I recommend everybody do it. <laughs> uh, it also gives me a great appreciation for teachers who have to mm. live day in and day out with that level of energy for hours on end. So, Laura, I know that was something that, that you did for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I, I sat down at the table with my group, and next to me was this young eight-year-old girl named Eva who by far built the best house, at least at our table. And uh, she started talking to me about how much she likes Harry Potter. And so we we got into a conversation. And of course, I asked her, who's your favorite character? And she said, Hermione. But she was surprised that Hermione was put into Gryffindor. (laughs) And I asked her why. And she said, because she's so smart. (laughs) And Ouch. I just thought that that was a lot of uh, intuition on the part of a eight-year-old. And she told me her favorite professor was Lupin. She also liked Hagrid. Mm-hmm. And uh, she had been to Orlando. She And then she, as soon as I asked her whether or not she'd been to the theme park, she kind of like lit up and she's like, have you been on the Gringotts ride? <laughs> so, like, it was just so, so cool to see somebody that young 
who was so into Harry Potter. Yeah, that's really cute. And then you thought about recommending MuggleCast, but then you remember we get a little inappropriate on this show from time to time. <laughs> right. Maybe, maybe she could go back and listen to the early episodes. That, <laughs> when we were eight okay. years old? <laughs> when we were eight years old, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, very cute. Uh, had a great time. That's and, great. And I actually posted a video up on uh, on Twitter, which MuggleCast retweeted. But I'm a little curious somebody that young was she reading the illustrated editions or the the Ooh, the real books good question don't know i did not ask okay we'll have to have her on the show and and follow up on some of these questions <laughs> but uh, she does she does watch the movies cool she says she's up to she hasn't finished the series yet she's on half blood prince so so she's eight years old which means she was born the year that we last finished order of the phoenix chapter by chapter oh gosh that's <laughs> disturbing oh man that's really disturbing yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, if y'all want to feel old, Eva didn't exist when we started this show. <laughs> For another six years. Yeah. Uh, and even better, um, she said the rule in her house is that you have to read the book before you watch the movie. Oh, nice. that is a great oh, household. Oh, man. Those are awesome parents. Parenting done right. Good stuff. We also got this email from Kayla. Hey, MuggleCasters. Last night, I went on a Harry Potter booze cruise. And ship was lit. Had way too many... We just went from one extreme to the other, by the way. (laughs) Innocent girl to party girl on a cruise ship. Ship was lit. Had way too many butterbeers, but still somehow managed to score 100% on trivia. But so did three others. The tiebreaker? Albus Dumbledore's full name. In my inebriated state, I still managed to get his full name correct. And I think I owe it all to you. I won the Triwizard Cup and obviously had them fill it up with more butterbeer. <laughs> the bar witch was so freaking excited to make one in that cup. Thanks, MuggleCast, for contributing to my epic takedown, 20 points to Gryffindor. That's fantastic, Kayla. <laughs> I love that. I hope Kayla got home safely afterwards. Um, I want to know about this Harry Potter booze cruise. Yeah, what is what is that? Yeah, can we do this together in 2020, Andrew? Sure. Yes, I would love to do <laughs> I've this. I've never been on a cruise, so that would be that'd be exciting for me. Ooh, it's fun. I love how the bartender is called the bar witch. Yeah, I like, yeah, right. Kayla didn't have to say that, but she is in character. In character. Mm-hmm. Super stoked. Congratulations. And congratulations to the other people who got 100%. That's pretty cool, right? Yeah, some I smart mean, people on that boat. Andrew, you and I know how hard it is to, to get ahead. And some of these questions are a little wonky. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. But uh, be good for well, that. That is a good idea. Let's go next year before Warner Brothers starts shutting down these Harry Potter cruises. I, I can't imagine them being very cool with, with that. Agreed. 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 Uh, and still in the holiday spirit, I actually came across a book I want to recommend or, or two books. But one of them is specifically for Harry Potter fans. And that's called Law Made Fun Through Harry Potter's Adventures, 99 Lessons in Law from the Wizarding World. For fans of all ages, and it's by Karen Morris Esquire and Bradley S. Carroll Esquire. This book was sent to me as part of like a, a a review. It was like a review copy, and I read it. But I went through it, and I was like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" They basically take all the instances in all the Harry Potter books that ha- have basically a tie-in to real-world law. So, for instance, um, bank robbery. <laughs> Because Harry Potter, as it's like, I, I often forget, but yeah, they rob a bank. They break into Bellatrix's vault. And it talks about the real world sort of rules and laws and punishments for that sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and, and there's also obviously a lot to do with book five. 
which is why I'm recommending it. There's a lot to do with um, government setting uh, the curriculum of schools, of public schools, and a lot of really interesting lessons. And none of it is like very heady. They managed to break it down into like the segments that make the most sense. So I read this book and I loved it. Um, and I highly recommend it. The Kindle version is only $3.99. Cool. I'm going to get this for Andrew. Because I guarantee that there's something in there about Hogwarts being a security nightmare. Thank you. I would like to read more about this urgent issue. So that was uh, definitely something I wanted to throw in for any last minute Christmas gift uh, givers. And uh, then there's another book that uh, I wrote something for and I'm in called Pod Life Podcaster Stories. And I tell in this book the story of how I first joined MuggleCast. Mm-hmm. Nice. But it's a bunch of stories. If if anybody out there is looking to start a podcast, this is a great – there's like 20 other people who wrote as well how they started their podcast. And it's local sort of Chicago podcast group called the Southgate Media Group that put this all together. And it's just really inspiring stories. Also, every podcast is way different and everybody comes at it for like way different reasons. So it's also an inspiring cool. like, look. It's too bad you didn't get to write in this book next year because you could retell – your time on the Harry Potter booze cruise that we're taking. Ugh, I'm sure that would be worth its own book. You and I can write a book. We'll, sure. We'll, or all four of us can can collaborate. <laughs> it's time now for chapter by chapter. We're diving into Order of the Phoenix, chapter 11, the Sorting Hat's new song. And we will start with our seven word summary. Umbridge. Takes. Dumbledore's. Spotlight. Down. Uh, during dinner cool there we go away would have been easy for me to say but i wanted to screw with y'all that's why i chose takes yeah yeah umbridge takes it's very very devious yeah for sure but um okay so this chapter picks up right where the last one left off the trio and neville and Ginny and luna are in a carriage Heading up to Hogwarts, Harry is a little disturbed by what he sees in the Thestrals, but he's also still disturbed and can't get over what he doesn't see in Hagrid. And Ginny asks, I mean, nobody's going to talk about it until Ginny says, hey, what is Gribbly Plank doing back? Is she replacing Hagrid? And it comes to light. Of course, last chapter was Luna Lovegood and Luna tells some uncomfortable truths, but Luna has the brashness to state that Hagrid is a joke of a teacher to Ravenclaws. Like, you don't actually think that he's good, right? And it's funny to see how the cards fall because Harry and Ron and Ginny all jump to, like, the defense. Oh, yeah, he's great. And Hermione, bless her, wants to be able to do that, but kind of mm, falters a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was interesting to comment on how the loyalties that these kids have to Hagrid really affect their judgment. I mean, it's just a tiny conversation, but seeing Harry and Ron really jump and, and Ginny too, we don't know what her relationship with Hagrid is to really jump to his defense. And even Hermione is like, well, Luna kind of has a point. Yeah. In a way. 
Yeah, it's like when you want to support your friends, even though you know that maybe what they're doing, they're not that great at. But of course, you're going to go to their concert anyway, or go check out their podcast or read their book. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Is that a reference to the book that I just mentioned? (laughs) Of course not. I haven't read it yet, but I can't wait to rave about your work. Okay, thank you. It it really stings, and I kind of found it inappropriate, but I guess Luna is unfiltered that way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Also, this just reminds me, and I feel like we've all probably had this experience before, of having a teacher that you like on a personal level very much, but recognizing that they're like not the greatest teacher. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is the first time that this group is being called to the floor to acknowledge that. Mm -hmm. Of course, they all have the knowledge that Hagrid was wrongly forced to drop out of Hogwarts. So... He's he was educationally stunted Mm. over something that was not his fault. So they're probably unknowingly cutting him a lot of slack, deservedly so. But that's probably context that somebody like Luna wouldn't have. That's true. That's a great point. Because you wonder what kind of student Hagrid actually was when he was at Hogwarts prior to him getting expelled. And Eric, I think the point that you raise about loyalty affecting judgment is is a good one. But as we see throughout the course, really of this chapter and the entire book, the staff that Dumbledore has put into place here is questionable. Their qualifications are not – they don't meet a certain standard in a lot of cases that you would want if you had kids and your kids were going to school. Hagrid is a teacher that I think – very much leads with his heart and and there's good intention behind what he does. Mm. But I don't know that he's qualified to teach. And I think that Luna raising this point is a very good one. And even going back to Prisoner of Azkaban, where he first takes over this role, say what you want about Draco and, and him being antagonistic. If Hagrid was a good teacher, he would have been paying attention to what was going on. Exactly. And mm-hmm. maybe that incident with Buckbeak doesn't happen. And I think that it just speaks to his ability to teach in that sense. So I, I tend to agree with Luna. I, I do yeah. think he's a bit of a joke of a teacher who just kind of filled a role that was needed. Yeah. I mean, you really can't blame a Ravenclaw in Luna for being excited at the prospect of Grubbly Plank. Ginny has some kind of weird thing against her. But, uh, you know, we just don't know what the Ravenclaw's lessons with Hagrid were. I think Hagrid, we probably already know, he kind of fails to communicate the importance of the creature that he's teaching or or, or gives them a too dangerous creature that they, like, can't handle. Mm-hmm. So, And that goes to Andrew's point of being a security nightmare. Oh, yeah. total security. <laughs> I mean, <it's- laughs> because you have a professor that doesn't understand the danger of some of these creatures that he's trying to teach about. And so if he's not mm-hmm. doing it safely from a distance, then he's not protecting these these young students who need to be protected. Let's face it. I guarantee you there's somebody that we grew up with that all of us know that probably would have done the same thing that Draco did. <laughs> oh, yeah. And so it's just because we don't like Draco that you know we're, we're a little bit quicker to judge. But I think some of that blame and responsibility does fall on Hagrid for what happened. Well, it's just so interesting starting the chapter on this argument because it all, it's almost like we need an umbrage in this school to kind of, I don't know, say that these teachers aren't good, right? <laughs> right? Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> 
I will I will say in fairness to Hagrid, I think some of this boils down also to a tendency towards, you know, teaching from an applied perspective, meaning that I'm actually going to give you real world experience and we're not going to spend tons of time going over theory. <laughs> and I have a feeling being a Ravenclaw myself, that Ravenclaws need a lot of that foundational theory in order mm. to gain an understanding and a respect for the subject matter. Mm. And if yeah. they're not getting that, then they think they'll probably think it's just a joke. And I'm guessing, and actually, we know that Hagrid does not provide this. Yeah. I mean, Hagrid's value as a teacher, Trelawney's value as a teacher, to Micah's point about Dumbledore. I mean, Trelawney, yeah. That's who I've also been thinking of during this discussion. I mean, she's losing her mind in front of the students. Yeah. Yeah. But we know why he's keeping her there. And it's not necessarily because she's a good teacher. Well, that's the whole thing, isn't right. it? In the bag there is like, well, so Umbridge is here. Somebody from the ministry. We'll obviously get to this in a minute. But it's probably like on the surface, it's not the worst thing in the world. We'll, we'll talk, I, you know. Well, yeah, but I, I would also say it'd be interesting to go back and take a look at what professors were there prior to Dumbledore taking over mm. as headmaster <laughs> versus the professors that he has brought on to fulfill some of these roles, yeah. right? Like I would assume McGonagall, Flitwick, Sprout. Yeah. They may have been there prior to him taking over the reins. And then Dumbledore comes in and the zoo comes to town. <laughs> Big old circus at Hogwarts. Yeah. It's basically Circus Arcanus at Hogwarts. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that Dumbledore likes to give people chances. Yeah, I agree yeah, with that. I mean, we even see this with Mundungus Fletcher. He he tries to be very intentional about not holding people's pasts against them. Yes. And I think that he tries to allow people to have opportunities for redemption. And I think it's pretty appropriate with Hagrid. I mean, what happened to him was not his fault. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I almost wonder why they didn't put him back in school, mm. like, you know, a few years behind, but he could have completed. That would have been cool. It's like that rumored Harry Potter video game that apparently is going to come out one day. Oh. Where you, you're you a late bloomer in terms of getting your wizarding abilities. What if that was about Hagrid? That would be cool as hell. <sighs> That'd be great. I agree. So we get into the Great Hall where most of this chapter takes place, and Harry gets the distinct impression that Lavender and Parvati, who say hello to him, were talking about him only seconds before. He's like, he's pretty sure because they are kind of like laughing and giggling and looking at him, but saying like, hello, genuinely, but like, he gets the idea they're talking about it. And it's just that all of this stuff we really see, not to put too fine a point on it, but at the end of this chapter, it's even clearer. How much damage the ministry or the Daily Prophet, perhaps with the slant of the ministry, has done to Harry's rep. Right, right. And I want to talk about that later in the episode, uh, because I think Dumbledore should have been planning for this. Mm -hmm. Because Harry, throughout this chapter, starting with this moment, is being treated poorly by his fellow students, and it's not fair to Harry. Yeah, it's just kind of it's kind of shitty that uh, fellow Gryffindors were talking about him. Do you think that's what it is, though, or do you think it's more of a girls' conversation? Meaning, like they're interested in Harry, like beyond what's he's being said. Cute. Yeah, well, I think that's next year. Yeah, Parvati also did not have a good time with Harry at the Yule Ball the prior year, so I don't know. I don't know that it would necessarily be a positive conversation. I read it more as like gossip. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
But speaking of gossip, Laura, I think you asked last uh, chapter or suggested that Ginny was super popular in her grade. She gets hailed over to the Gryffindor table. People are wanting to sit with her. And we don't we don't know any of those people. Yep. We don't even know her dorm mates. Right. Because the trio are not the cool kids. So <laughs> despite what they may think, we, they are we not. don't get to see that vantage point. Yeah. This reminds me of my high school days. I was the loser and my sister was one of the cool kids. Oh, my God. Same. Really? Your brother was the cool kid? (laughs) Yes, very much so. (laughs) Now the tables have turned. That's right. I'm a podcaster now. (laughs) Um, So uh, Hagrid, just before the sorting hat uh, begins his yearly song, ballad, whatever you want to call it. Uh, Harry notices Umbridge is up on the dais because he's still looking for Hagrid. He was looking for he saw the w- windows were you know shut and the lights were turned off in the cabin. And now Hagrid's not at the table. He notices Umbridge and Ron and Hermione don't know who that is. And it reminded me that we spent the beginning of this book. Harry's you know kind of really isolated. Like he had this whole knowledge of who she is, what she's doing uh, that they did not because he had to go alone to those hearings. Mm-hmm. So just kind yeah. of. An interesting thing. And then she turns and he's like, oh, my God, it's the toad from the ministry. (laughs) Toad face. (laughs) One thing I found interesting, though, uh, as he was kind of doing his assessment of who is up on the dais and and really just throughout the course of the entire chapter is there's no mention of Snape whatsoever. And I just found that given the history between the two of them, that he's always kind of, you know – thinking bad things about Snape or has something negative to say about him. It's like a total transition that the focus is now all on Umbridge. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah. Because I think he's extra on edge due to Hagrid's absence and then seeing this woman who he saw at the ministry and then, of course, what's going on with the prophet. A lot of reason to be, you know, Snape's old news. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this song that the Sorting Hat sings, and it's it's been a little while, I think, since we got a full Sorting Hat song. I could be wrong, but there's a couple years where we miss them because Harry misses them. Um, but this one is a good one. It's very groundbreaking, too, at least for the trio, because they're not used to the Sorting Hat giving advice. So the Sorting Hat kind of steps beyond his scope here. He mm-hmm. begins talking about the founders as usual, what they value, all this, all that, but then breaks into a, I'm not sure I should be doing this, sorting you all kind of existential crisis. And it's very interesting to see a hat have this kind of conflict within itself in its song. It is. It was also, I still remember being very excited reading this book for the first time and seeing this chapter. The Sorting Hat's new song, because mm-hmm. of course you we all love the Sorting Hat, and to get a new tune from him, it was it was very tantalizing. I got very excited when I was flipping through <laughs> that chapter list. <laughs> oh, I did that too. Did you do that thing where like you read all the chapter names first? Yeah, yeah. You know, you just can't resist, right? And I, it's, it's yeah, it's normally not too spoilery. So no, yeah, I did the same exact thing the first time I would read the Harry Potter books. But um, something about the founders, I thought was. Interesting, and I hadn't heard this before, but uh, they were all friends. We kind of knew they got along. They started Hogwarts, but Slytherin and Gryffindor uh, in particular, the Sorting House says, for were there such friends anywhere as Slytherin and Gryffindor? And I'm thinking, this is like a Professor X Magneto thing. They were like 
best friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they were really close, Slytherin and Gryffindor. And to, I mean, to more to the point, like all of them were 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 really really close. And I always thought of them as being having like you know just different personalities. After all, we know that the houses are molded after the four fates of Greek uh, theory and 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 all of that. But I always thought of them as colleagues. I never really thought of them as friends, but the way that the sorting ad kind of says it makes me think of like James and Sirius, you know? I was going to say, Andrew, you can write your next Never Sever Us based Mm. upon this uh, description. (laughs) This reminded me very much of uh, Dumbledore and Grindelwald Mm. like, and sort of the separation that takes place um, once the incident with Ariana happens. So just those kind of parallels, clearly something happened between Slytherin and Gryffindor that, and we know it's related to just teaching purebloods, but yeah, there's like that one incident that finally drives two people apart that are extremely close because there's this just so such a strong difference of opinion. Mm-hmm. It kind of just blew my mind there. Would you say that Dumbledore and Grindelwald are the difference between Gryffindor and Slytherin, like heightened because they both seek power, but- there's some kind of a line somewhere. Ooh, I think that's interesting. We can maybe have a whole discussion about that, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. That just, <laughs> just mildly blew my mind because I wasn't thinking, you know, Grindelwald didn't go to Hogwarts as far as I know. He's not, you know, necessarily been sorted. But we'll still that in the pocket for later. But yeah, the sorting hat is talking about duels here between founders. Can you imagine if you were like one of the first students at Hogwarts and like, you know, it's been going great. You're in year four or whatever. And all of a sudden, like Godric Gryffindor and Salazar Slytherin are like battling in the entrance hall and you have to like find a secret passage to go to the dungeons for your potions class. Like, you know, kind of crazy stuff, right? Mommy and daddy fighting. Yeah. I would love to get something like a short story, like, a movie even depicting this dynamic. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me. I actually, so I used to write a lot of Harry Potter fan fiction, but like before I even worked for MuggleNet. So we're talking like when I was 15 years old. <laughs> and I actually did like a flashback in one of the fan fictions I wrote that showed the split of the Hogwarts founders. And in my head canon, Slytherin and Ravenclaw were romantically involved. And the breaking point where Slytherin decided, screw this, I'm leaving this school, was when Ravenclaw finally turned against him after he was getting a cold shoulder from Gryffindor and Hufflepuff. Mm. And he leaves the school. He comes back to try and convince Rowena to go with him. She refuses something sort of like undisclosed erupts um, in terms of an argument about this. And it ends with Rowena Ravenclaw dead. Hmm. And I was like, okay, like this, you know, whatever. I was basically a child when I wrote it. But then years later, we found out the story about the Grey Lady and the Bloody Baron. And I was like, oh, this is kind of reflective of what I imagine happened, except- She stole your story. She like <laughs> went on to MuggleNet fanfiction and took what you wrote and just edited it slightly. <laughs> I'm fine with it. If J.K. Rowling ever thought that anything I wrote was good enough to steal- But Laura, I the royalties- Take it, Joe. I know. What you could have- Just give me an autograph. Yeah. Uh just pay for my student loans and we'll call it square. <laughs> I think this really illustrates there is a lot of crossover, though. Even between Slytherin and Ravenclaw, there's a huge amount of 
overlap, I think, between the houses. And the Sorting Hat, you know, with with the song that overall calls for unity, more than ever, the Sorting Hat is like, we get a band together, I probably shouldn't even be sorting you, but I gotta, um, is calling for unity. And there's a really lot, like, it's really important to focus on how they were all friends yeah. originally, and how, quote, discord crept among us, feeding on our faults and fears. And he also says after Slytherin left, never since the founders four were whittled down to three have the houses been united as they once were meant to be. And he's just talking about the strength of us overcoming our faults and fears to live in harmony. And I think that's a obviously a very noble uh, goal, a noble dream for a hat to have. Um, but it's something we should all aspire mm-hmm. to ultimately. Yeah. And of course, the hat here is recalling this story because the hat sees this happening in present day. Um, and I'm I, I'm also not surprised generally by how the founders fell apart, or at least Gryffindor and Slytherin did, because when they're putting together such an important place like Hogwarts, naturally, they're going to run into some conflicts. And as we see in the real world all the time, these people that go into business together suddenly fall apart because they just see different visions for what they're building. Yeah, sometimes, you know, you just want to teach the brave at heart. Other times you want to go full Nazi and just set up your own like pure blooded uh, student body. Godric was like, you know, not for me. (laughs) Different ideas. The fun thing about reading it now is we know that Slytherin still had his secret chamber. Mm-hmm. Like when he left, he still prepped for some kind of a post-apocalyptic, like I will still be able to have my influence even after I leave mm-hmm. garbage. Mm-hmm. Like it was very cunning of him, I guess I should say, to to leave, but while still putting that all together. Right. I, and I agree with Andrew. I think when you look at the words discord crept among us feeding on our faults and fears that's exactly what's happening right now we even see it at the end of this chapter with Seamus and how he is interacting with Harry this is amongst gryffindors this is not mm-hmm. gryffindor versus slytherin this is very much you know a mother's influence on her child and and and, and how Seamus is then interacting with Harry as a result of that. And and I think there's no better representation of the, you know, the discord than Umbridge being introduced in this chapter. So the fact that these houses are going to need to band together is, is extremely important. And that second quote about the founders for, since they're whittled down to three, never were as they were meant to be. This seems to indicate that Slytherin is a necessary ingredient. My natural inclination when hearing about Slytherin's pure blood mania and how he had a falling out and left is screw him. Who cares? Like, we don't need him. But according to the Sorting Hat, they actually did need him. That that Slytherin brought, with all of his racial bias uh, and prejudices and all of that, he still represented a faction of the world, right? He still represented mm-hmm. part of the student body that was being best served under his tutelage somehow. And for some reason, we need him for unity. So we, you know, I always, I, in terms of taking lessons from JK Rowling, this I think is a very teachable moment of maybe we should look into more of more of what it was that Slytherin brought. What were the the good qualities that we can all agree on that were then forever lost when he left? 
I I felt like this was an interesting comparison to the Battle of Hogwarts, um, because when we think about that, things were really not looking very good uh, towards the point where Harry was walking into the forest to face Voldemort. It seemed like all was lost. And really, it was Narcissa Malfoy, a Slytherin, who turned everything around by pretending that Harry was dead. Mm. If she hadn't done that, who knows what would have happened. Agree. Yeah. And and sh- she was protecting her son like she had her her best interest was her her own self-interest in preserving her family and doing that. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That's yep. a good point. And I also think it's why it was so important to bring Slughorn back into the fold in Half-Blood Prince. Mm-hmm. He was a former head of Slytherin house. He then retakes that role once Snape becomes headmaster in Deathly Hallows. But just knowing the character of Slughorn, we know that there's certainly a lot of faults that we call attention to his desire to sort of collect people. But at the end of the day, I think we see him as being this good-hearted individual and joins into the battle as well. And I think when you're talking about stressing unity um, – it's also important to look at the fact that the ministry is infiltrating Hogwarts and you need unity when that is happening. And I think that is kind of a microcosm of what's happening in the larger wizarding world at this time, right? Um, Voldemort and the Death Eaters are on the rise and without that unity, what's going to happen, right? What, what, what's the end result Mm -hmm. going to be? So I think we're getting a snapshot at Hogwarts of what's really indicative of happening in the larger wizarding community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Knowing what we know now about Umbridge, it's kind of shocking that she just sits there and takes in these comments from the Sorting Hat and does nothing <laughs> to reprimand the Sorting Hat. Like you would think she would torch that thing after <laughs> what the hat just said. It goes completely against what she's trying to do there or you know enact an educational decree where the sorting hat is no is is banned from hogwarts like <laughs> man she just sits there i kind of i wish jk rowling added a comment here about umbridge like twitching while the sorting hat is <laughs> making these remarks yeah i never got the impression that umbridge was that smart <laughs> like she like, didn't know what the hat was saying. Maybe or maybe she wasn't even really paying attention. I I could see her being somebody who is so hung up in wizarding tradition that to her it's just like, oh, this is the sorting hat. It's going to do its thing. I've heard this, you know, at least 7 times mm-hmm. in my life. Like I'm just going to kind of tune this out because it's just a hat. Like it, <laughs> just the hat. I, I could it's more than I a could hat, very Laura. much see yeah, but I could very much see her not having respect for it because it's not a pure blood wizard. Right. Like we see that that's how she treats everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like that, especially from a procedural standpoint, because I imagine in her mind, it's like, okay, it's time for the sorting hat. Once that's done, I'm going to step in and say what I have to say. And mm-hmm. she may be even be rehearsing what she's going to say so that she nails it in her mind. Mm-hmm. And- yeah. <laughs> uh, one thing though about this is, just given how relevant what the Sorting Hat is saying, I liked what Nearly Headless Nick said about the hat being able to pick up things because it sits in Dumbledore's office. So I wonder if you know, prior to each year, does Dumbledore just kind of sit down with the hat and be like, hey, look, 
this is how it's going to go this year and make sure you hit these points and uh, I'll put you on like a really comfy pillow for the rest of the year. <laughs> and I'll brush you. Yeah. I'll okay. wash you. I'll keep the office at your desired temperature. Oh my God. <laughs> I'll buy you another hat that you can hang out with. Oh man. <laughs> so you can make... You can make baby skull caps or something like that. Oh my! <laughs> I don't know. When two hats love each other, I love that. Like that—that's cool. The fact that the hat can pick up on things that are going on in Dumbledore's office. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it—it it once was Godric Gryffindor's own hat too. So uh, you often kind of wonder if it was biased in some way, but mm. it appears not to have been. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's doing the school a real solid. The problem is there isn't very much follow through that anyone's doing to kind of think deeper or go at, do any more of like a, aha uh -huh, after, after the, the sorting hat, like Ron, Ron just says, um, branched out a bit this year, hasn't it? And everybody's like, yeah, yeah, it kind of has. Hmm. Interesting. But there's no follow through. Like what does unity actually look like? And Although we see that with Dumbledore's army later in the book, that's unity under intense pressure. Uh, and if they, if there had not been this outside pressure of umbrage, I wonder if anybody would have actually kind of reached across the aisle and reached across to, to the other houses and really tried to follow the Sorting Hat's advice. Or would they just have kind of forgotten it? I think it's hard because sorting is kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy, mm. especially sorting is young as this society does. Um, and I feel like even when we think about houses, you know, if somebody does something, we'll be like, oh, well, yeah, you know, Andrew's a Gryffindor. So, of course, <laughs> he would think that way. And it's kind of like this self-fulfilling prophecy where you justify somebody's behavior based on what house they're in. Mm-hmm. And then people just sort of like tend to grow and accept truths about themselves based on, you know, their house identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why you see things like, um, I think it's later in this book where somebody expresses surprise that Hermione's not in Ravenclaw because of how smart she is. Um, and it's one of the things that I actually really admire about Hermione is that when presented with the choice, she was like, well, I already got the books and, and the intelligence thing down. So I want to go this other path mm -hmm. and see what comes of it instead of just falling into what's easy for me. Yeah. And we see Hermione actually develop as a character because she becomes far more brave over the course of the seven books than I think she would have if she'd been sorted into Ravenclaw. Yeah, absolutely. Diversity strengthens these characters. And... To that point, Laura, she's really the impetus behind Dumbledore's army, and I think that speaks to her courage. Mm -hmm. Yep. So it is nice that Nearly Headless Nick does say the school or the hat itself feels honor-bound to deliver this. And and although times are dark, uh, it is actually not the first time that the hat has issued a similar warning. So yeah, I'd be interested in learning what the previous circumstances uh, surrounding that were. Oh, I bet it totally did it during... The Grindelwald <laughs> conflict. Yeah. The first uh, first Wizarding War yep. against Voldemort a couple other times. But uh, Oh, you may not think I'm pretty, but have you seen Grindelwald? Oh, my God. That guy is really <laughs> ugly. <laughs> <laughs> Looks just like Johnny Depp. <laughs> it's weird. So uh, once the Sorting Hat song finishes, there's a warm and welcome presence 
of Dumbledore, the headmaster <sighs> who steps up. Uh, what a what a what a sigh of relief! And I almost expect Harry to burst into flames and like freak <laughs> out because you know. Like he can't see Dumbledore. There's this whole thing of Dumbledore is employing this course of avoid him at all costs. But for some reason, whatever scar connection is causing Harry to flip out isn't active right now. And Harry is able to gain comfort, right? He's seen the Thestrals. Uh, Yeah. You know, I I think Harry's a little in denial at this point in terms of his relationship at Dumbledore with Dumbledore, because then at the very end of the chapter, he's like, me and Dumbledore are in this together. Uh, Yeah. And I'm thinking like, um, He's blocked you. He's ghosted you. It's over <laughs> for now. It's kind of a weird like setback or change of pace here for Harry yeah. to be like so comforted by Harry, Dumbledore. Harry should have stood up in this moment and said, hey, Dumbledore, can we finally talk, please? <laughs> please, please. And Filch escorts him out. <laughs> oh, man. Dumbledore calls for security. He pulls Harry away. But it's uh but again it's the unity over a common enemy because although Harry is feeling comforted weirdly by Dumbledore's presence, Dumbledore gets interrupted in his announcements. And then like half the school is like clearly this woman does not know how things are done at Hogwarts. But Professor Umbridge, Ooh. Dolores Jane Umbridge steps up and takes the opportunity to deliver her magnum opa to this point um her speech about you know prohibiting what needs to be prohibited it's crazy that she inter like but it's a perfect introduction to this character um because she's all fake sweetness and thanks dumbledore so kindly for the introduction and invitation that he didn't give to give a speech and then she gives a speech and we're going to do things my way i don't care if dumbledore's talking right now this is my school now and it's just amazing how much uh i want to say gaslighting takes place during umbridge's speech she says things like looking at all of your happy smiling faces and harry who's meanwhile like point by point disagreeing and taking down like his inner monologue is really on fire right now looks around and is like nobody's smiling Mm mm-hmm no, nobody's 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 smiling back at Umbridge like this is a blatant lie. And we're just seeing that Umbridge is very much like she is able to look in the face of something and lie to her own self and everyone else as to what that face is. And here is someone who is so ignorant as to the return of Voldemort that she's becoming dangerous um, to everyone. She's a danger to everyone and ignoring the facts that we know to be true. Do you think? She sent a note back to Fudge that night telling him how all the students were so happy that she was there and they were smiling back at her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I agree to some extent, but I also think that given the setting, there has to be a little bit of embellishment Mm. because remember, she's talking to kids, right? Yeah. So to say, oh, all of your smiling faces – like. I get that that's complete BS, but at the same time, this is a uh, adult speaking to children. And, and so I wonder if we can look at it through that lens at all. Yeah, I, I think you're right. I mean, we've definitely, as a student, I had pe- uh, teachers do that all the time. Right, right exactly. Like- uh, I also wondered, was this payback for how Dumbledore showed up fudge during Harry's hearing <laughs> that she was going to just insert herself into the middle of Dumbledore's opening speech yeah probably and as we spoke about a few chapters ago 
Umbridge's presence may be a direct result of that taunting little line that he had during mm-hmm. the trial when he said, I don't believe the ministry has any control o- over Hogwarts. And uh, so, yeah, I-, I think interrupting Dumbledore may also be a result of his entrance at the trial. Yeah. Yeah, it's a real power move for sure. Mm-hmm. Do you think Dumbledore should have clapped back or just to avoid a scene, just let it go? I think he played it just right, quite honestly. Yep. I, yeah. I think in that situation, because it was so unexpected, he understood exactly what was going on. And to make a scene wouldn't have done anything for him. It wouldn't have it probably wouldn't have come across very well to the students. And then also Harry does a very good job of picking up the reactions and the true feelings of some of the other professors. I think it's noted how McGonagall responds just in her facial expressions several times <laughs> during Umbridge's speech, Sprout also. So I think Harry, he gets what's going on here. So even though Harry was listening, nobody was listening more intently than Hermione, who, of course, and this comes up in the movie too, uh, perfectly summarizes Umbridge's speech as saying the ministry is interfering at Hogwarts. And part of me still thinks it's about time, right? We've had some bad teachers. This is a very security nightmare. Yeah. Like, totally it- agree. <laughs> I, I mean, to play a bit of devil's advocate, aren't they just filling a post that has a high turnover and that Dumbledore has had a bad track record of filling to date? Like, we we just talked about a couple professors who are questionable in Hagrid and Trelawney. And this post has had now five different teachers in the five years that Harry has been there. Um, Hogwarts is a security nightmare to Andrew's <laughs> point that he brings up it's all the time. It's all of like, our points. Don't just give it to me. Okay. It's, we all are in agreement. But, but we all love hearing you say you, security You developed it. It's, like you're, it's your. <laughs> we need like an audio bite going into 2020, <laughs> Andrew, of like you saying that, that we can just play every day. Uh-huh. With sirens and stuff. With a little. <laughs> yeah. I'll think about that. All right. Seems like you already thought about it. A few times. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I, I'll play devil's advocate here. I, I'm and I agree with Eric. I think it's about time the ministry did something here because Dumbledore, he doesn't have his stuff together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, you know, and this is reflective of the push and pull that happens in our world with, you know, the relationship between government and educational institutions. Um, so I think for one, it depends on does Hogwarts receive funding mm. from the ministry? Like, do they get government funding? That's a great question. Because if they do, then the ministry has some right to be involved with the school. Um, you know, we could debate to what extent that should be. Um, the other thing that I'll say is that it'd be one thing if Umbridge was just filling the Defense Against the Dark Arts position, but in interrupting Dumbledore and giving this sweeping speech about educational reform, she's made it very clear that that's not really what she's here to do. She's here to try and influence how things work at the school mm. on like a macro level. Right. And what scares me the most about this is that 
they're interfering with something that these kids actually really need to learn. Yeah. They need to learn it mm-hmm. not just in theory, but in practice, especially given what like even if you put Voldemort aside, these kids need to learn how to be able to defend themselves in future situations, regardless of whether or not they're Death Eaters. And the fact that the ministry is coming in and trying to essentially stunt their growth in this space, I think is extremely troubling. Mm -hmm. This reminds me of some of the struggles that we've had in public schools in this country, where there have been sort of lobbies on the state and local level to influence curriculum to sort of do away with things that make people uncomfortable, like science um, and also history. There was a prominent case out of Texas one or two years ago where a history textbook, instead of referring to African slaves as slaves, they called them workers, Mm. just trying to totally erase that very ugly chapter of American history because it makes people uncomfortable to think about. Mm -hmm. Well, you should be uncomfortable. That was a horrible thing. <laughs> yeah. And on, on the point of needing to, of these students needing to defend themselves, I think one of the biggest arguments for why they would need to learn that type of thing is because the first Wizarding War had only been about 16, 17 years prior. Mm-hmm. It's fresh in everybody's mm-hmm. memories. It'd be one thing if like there's never been major conflict, but... There has been, and quite recently. So to forget about that and act like it could never happen again this soon after is pretty foolish. You're right. It's it's particularly dangerous that she's coming for the, you know, basically the students arming themselves, being able to defend themselves. Yeah. And actually what you were saying, Laura, reminds me of contraceptive uh, teaching, yep. right? Like to prevent teenage pregnancy, like nobody wants teenage pregnancy. It's not a good thing. So teach these kids how to use contraceptives so that they are like don't have to worry about that situation but there's people that want to do away with proper sex ed in schools so mm-hmm. right and it's it's not because their priority is to prevent their pregnancies their priority is to prevent you know what they deem to be well they they want to prevent underage sexual activity right and there's just there's a certain reality that comes with that in my home state of Georgia, for example, um, you know, we have abstinence-only education here. That's what I went through when I was in high school. And yet, Georgia is number three in the country for teenage pregnancy and number one for repeat teenage pregnancy. Mm. People aren't being informed as to how things work. Right. And when they're ending up pregnant, it's a huge burden on everybody, especially the mother. And Mm -hmm. it's not a system that works. So Dolores Umbridge coming in and, you know, removing people's ability to do things like even a simple shield charm or whatever it was that they were going to learn this year and say, oh, if you read about it, you can do it. That's fundamentally false. And the ministry is playing right into Voldemort's hands, which I'm sure we'll talk about this at length mm-hmm. in the future chapters. Um, you know, we're going to get at least a couple Umbridge classes. Well, just briefly on the point about does the ministry fund Hogwarts. I know that J.K. Rowling tweeted two or three years ago that Hogwarts is tuition free. Mm. So you would think that the government is funding school. Yeah. And there are governors. There is a board of governors that Lucius Malfoy often 
bribes uh, to make changes at Hogwarts, including the removal of the headmaster. And ultimately, these are the 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 this is the only school in Britain, presumably. So these are our children, right? These are the the citizens of Britain's children. There definitely needs to be some government oversight there, and there and there is some government oversight into because otherwise the government wouldn't authorize Hogwarts as an institution. Uh, you know, in return, they need to have some kind of control over the curriculum and the, you know, who's running it and, and the style for sure. And what to ensure what laws are being followed as well. And that also, I mean, it just, there's so many real world scenarios that you can connect this to. And as a former teacher, I can say that one of the most frustrating things about being in education is having people on the government side of things trying to mandate things upon the institution when they themselves have no background in pedagogical theory or education or have like never stood in front of a classroom and taught before. I'm reminded of No Child Left Behind, right? Which is, which is, which is, it imposes, you know, threatens loss of funding for underperforming schools without getting at the issue of why they're underperforming Mm -hmm. um, and, and working to solve that crisis. Well, or the fact that teachers will be penalized if a certain percentage of their students don't perform well on standardized tests. When you consider the fact that a teacher has impact on maybe 30% of that student's life. And they have this whole other life outside of the school that's influencing them. But the onus is being put 100% on the teacher to make sure that student performs. Yeah, it's a real problem. So definitely something definitely some interesting thoughts with Umbridge is what what her being at Hogwarts means for the state of education. Like I really like that we kind of deep dived there. But um but following the feast, Harry has a surprise waiting in store for him. Up in the Gryffindor dormitory, Dean and Seamus are not the same Dean and Seamus that Harry knows and can rely on. At least Seamus isn't, because he's in a difficult position. I feel for Seamus here. Seamus' mother- I do too. Thank you. Seamus' mother kind of has been really influenced. And, 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 and frankly, let's look at the facts. Dumbledore gave a speech at the, the end of the last year about Cedric Diggory's death saying Voldemort is back. He told everybody Voldemort is back. But you go home from school and your crazy principal, who's kind of a bit of a nutter, has told everybody Voldemort is back, but it's not being reported in the news. And you have all summer for the Daily Prophet for like your main news source, like the New York Times, Chicago Sun-Times, LA Times, everybody is saying Voldemort's not back. And you're subject to months and months and months of Voldemort's not back and nobody's hearing Harry's side of things. Mm-hmm. Who are you more apt and inclined to yeah. believe if you're a person who always relied on these news organizations to tell you what was and what wasn't in mm-hmm. this world? And it doesn't sit right with me that Dumbledore did not do anything or for maybe he did foresee this situation coming up. I don't know. But then to let Harry come back to Hogwarts and deal with all these people who are thinking that Harry made that whole story up about Cedric. I think he should have said something in his opening speech. Or maybe he didn't because he was afraid of what Umbridge would do. Yeah. Uh, But it just seems irresponsible of Dumbledore to to let Harry hang like this. Mm. Because he's going to deal with this a lot. And it's unfair for a teenager to go through. 
I wonder if we need a Dumbledore sucks counter to start. Because <laughs> he's, really, well, we he's really put a situation in Harry's lap, like you say. We need to, uh, we would need to start back in book one. That would be fun <laughs> to do, though, in a loving way. <laughs> I, I do think Seamus is, is a bit of a prat, though. Uh, just the way that he's acting towards Harry, uh, you know, he's trying to dig out information that Harry clearly clearly doesn't want to provide, but also shouldn't have to, because I don't believe that him telling Seamus what happened in the graveyard is going to in any way alter Seamus's opinion of him and Dumbledore at this Mm -hmm. time. I think it it would. A face-to-face retelling of what happened and to see the emotion in Harry's face as he's recalling this, it would definitely be difficult for Harry to do. But I mean, we see this in movies all the time. You have you have a heart to heart with somebody, and then they believe you. Yeah. But should he have to though? Because think well, of how many people that he would have to do that for. Well, so then he, ha- you know, they they do this interview later in the book, which I think was a good idea. So no, he shouldn't have these face to face one on ones with everybody. But maybe just the people in his dorm. <laughs> yeah, the people he has to sleep and, next to. <laughs> right. Year. Right. And Harry acknowledges that he never had the chance to tell the school what happens mm. so i think harry does feel like that is necessary or at least jk rowling is trying to make the reader believe that that was necessary it's, it's just hard because i i do see why seamus would feel the way that he does you know his mother obviously has a lot of influence on him and she may be struggling herself to understand exactly what is going on and she may not want to send her son back to a school where this old man is just rambling about the return of of dark wizards and her son has to sleep in the same dormitory as Harry. I'm sure she knows that. And just given all the things that have befallen Harry over the course of these first couple of years he's been at Hogwarts, maybe she feels like Hogwarts is a security nightmare. <laughs> I do wonder, though, in the cases of these parents who think about not sending their kids back to school, you know, would Seamus's mother be considering sending him to a different wizarding school? Like, surely she wants him to be educated. I think so. But what are the options? Like, I don't think we know of anything else in the UK, do we? Uh, No, but like, he'd have to go to like, Bobatons or yeah. Durmstrang or Ilvermorny. Yeah. Either way, he's going to a different country. Mm-hmm. What would they call him there? Shemu? <laughs> wow. Shemu. Here in America, where we don't understand pronunciations of things, they would call him Seamus. <laughs> That's what I was going to say, because I definitely pronounced his name that way when I was first reading yeah. the books. <laughs> I'm just going to call you Sean for sure. Sean. Seamus. I love. But th- this is a tough scene, though, for Harry, because I think that... He just, he doesn't feel validated in any way. And he really hasn't since the start of this book. You think of all the things that he's gone through and then he gets up to his dormitory. You know, he, the reaction that he has when he comes into the Gryffindor common room is just one of comfort. He finally feels safe to some extent. And then that's completely thrown in disarray once he goes up to his bed and he has this fight with Seamus and it's like no place he can go where he actually feels that he can get away from any of this. And I think that's the continued isolation that 
we see him go through, and he's been through in many instances already since this book started. And good on Neville, though. Finally, somebody stands up for Harry. Yeah. Yeah, Neville and and Ron comes in with the the saving. Does anybody else have a problem with Harry's parent? Like, yeah, you know, and 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 I earlier in the chapter, <laughs> J.K. Rowling uh, referred to Ron as though he were a mildly amusing television program, uh, and he's definitely chewing on chicken while <laughs> trying to speak to nearly have this Nick, who's deathly sad that he can't eat food anymore. He's very insensitive. But he comes to Harry's aid, and he is like a really good friend to him. And I really appreciate Ron. I really appreciate Neville in this, you know, the chapter's end. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I do want to say there's a scene that made me laugh in the middle of this whole tense argument when Seamus goes and sits in his four poster and so angrily yanks his curtains <laughs> that they all fall down. We've all had that moment, though, where we're. <laughs> oh, I was like, that's me. Like, that yeah. would totally happen to me. <laughs> Like trying to make a point, just like, well, fine. And then it all falls down. Yeah. Didn't he? Uh, was it him who brought his wand to bed? Like, that's a little. Uh, he should be. Man, this he's afraid. afraid somebody's going to attack him in the night. Yeah. Just think about uh, Sirius. He was able to get in there. <laughs> but criminals are able to get <laughs> into. Uh, yeah. But uh, I-, I would just go back to what we said earlier, that that this is a perfect representation of, of discord. Um happening mm-hmm. not just amongst harry with other houses but within his own house and with people who are yeah. close to him and i think that just speaks to the current state of things right now for harry yeah and and it's not it's not like seamus is like i won't believe you i won't listen to reason it's that seamus and dean to their creditors like can you just give us a little bit more information as to what? And like Harry shouldn't have to. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Harry should not have to, and he's getting very triggered by the thought of this, and presumably still having nightmares about Voldemort's return, which happened only like three or four months ago. But but they need that little bit of right. They just need an opposing viewpoint, right? Like just uh, yeah, just tell us something, right? And may- maybe maybe Ron should have stepped in here and privately spoken with them. Yeah, come on, Ron, be a good friend. <laughs> So it, it it is a bit concerning that Harry again is a little isolated here, and it's just having having to deal with um mm-hmm. some some new problems in this new year, this new school year, which we'll talk about more in the new year. Yeah, and I do like that this forces Harry to put himself in Dumbledore's shoes and empathize with him a bit, and realize oh because Dumbledore believed me and took my side, he probably faced the same kind of situation with his peers. Yeah, I mean, Seamus uh, brings up the Wissingamo mm-hmm. and Dumbledore's removal from that, mm-hmm. and he's and and Dumbledore is uh, or Seamus is seeing it as like, oh, this was this highfalutin government appointment, like in in the government, and and Dumbledore's b- removal means that he wasn't qualified. But Seamus is failing to see the nuance there of if the government is corrupt, leaving the institution is actually a good move. That means good things and shows character. So bit bit concerning there that that but it it makes ultimately Seamus's argument kind of makes sense here. You hate it, but you can't help but see where it came from. All right. Well, I think we're off to a good start with chapters we've never discussed here on MuggleCast before. <laughs> it's time for the Umbridge suck count. At last check, Umbridge sucked seven times. I think we're at, going to add a few to the board today. Uh, first of all, interrupting Dumbledore. And we didn't do it earlier, but of course she has that classic <laughs> thing going on throughout the book. 
which was brilliantly brought to screen, oh, I thought. Yeah. And when Emerson and I spoke to Imelda Staunton on the red carpet for Order of the Phoenix, Emerson very smartly asked her to do Michael Nett. Uh-huh. <laughs> you can probably again, just get one. the audio. Michael from- Nett. <laughs> yeah. No, and honestly, we have to say she was perfect casting. Superb. Absolutely perfect. Yeah. Um, you look at somebody that's a larger-than-life character in Umbridge, and you're like, how are they ever... And Slughorn is the same. How are you ever going to like bring this into a human level? But Imelda Staunton absolutely nails it. It's pitch perfect. Yep. I do want to say she is far more attractive than the uh, umbrage that we get in the books, but that's also Hollywood for you. So. <laughs> you don't think she looks like a toad in the films? No. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, Imelda. You weren't toady enough. We didn't like your portrayal. <laughs> no, she was She was brilliant. Um, I've also heard rumors that she's apparently being considered to play the queen sort of when they age her up the next time in the crown i heard that too oh cool yeah oh that would be amazing i've seen her other work and it's amazing she's always very very good Mm -hmm. so plus one for interrupting dumbledore another point for boring everyone with her speech (laughs) except for hermione she was just scared um another point for being so bold as to say everyone was smiling at her when they were not And then I said one for wearing a cardigan over her robes. (laughs) Like, what? Not a good look. Hogwarts is a fashion nightmare. But I just, I don't, like, can you imagine how weird that would look? Why? That would look weird. Yeah, Yeah, your clothing goes under your robes. Get with it, Umbridge. (laughs) So that's four. One, two, three, four added to the board. Amazing. Up to 11. Yes, let's update that now so we don't forget. And I can't imagine how high it's going to go once we read the next chapter, because it is, in fact, (laughs) all about her. Oh, God. Uh, (laughs) All right. Well, we have some threads to connect today. Uh, The first one is Ministry Interference at Hogwarts. That's really the theme of this book. Um, But in Chapter 11 of Prisoner of Azkaban, we learn that Buckbeak has to appear before a committee for attacking Draco. This is at uh, the insistence of Lucius Malfoy, who has a lot of influence over the government and is clearly paying people off in order to get what he wants to happen at Hogwarts. Then in Chapter 11 of Order of the Phoenix, Umbridge makes it clear in her speech that the ministry plans to interfere with the school. We also have a thread to connect with Hagrid. So at the start of term feast, which in Prisoner of Azkaban, which was chapter five, Hagrid was announced as the Care of Magical Creatures instructor. And then at the start of term feast in Order of the Phoenix, chapter 11, Hagrid's missing from the high table and Professor Grubbly Plank is announced as the Care of Magical Teacher, Care of Magical Teachers, (laughs) Care of Magical Creatures instructor. (laughs) Some of those teachers do need to be cared for. They, they do need care. 
Um, and then we also have a connection with Defense Against the Dark Arts teachers. Lupin, who protected Harry from a Dementor in Prisoner of Azkaban, is announced as the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher during the opening ceremony feast in Prisoner of Azkaban Chapter 5. And then Umbridge, who actually sent Dementors after Harry, is announced as the Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher during the opening feast in Order of the Phoenix Chapter 11. Wow. Okay. Good stuff. My MVP of the week is the sorting hat for risking death when he made that speech in front of Umbridge. I thought that took (laughs) guts. And yes, the hat does have guts. My MVP goes to McGonagall because her facial expressions just said it all throughout Umbridge's speech. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I liked the descriptions of her eyebrows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, she's just low-key savage. I'd love to know what she was thinking. Yep. (laughs) Um, I gave mine to Neville. For being the friend that Harry needed. Oh, Yeah, you couldn't help but have a swell of pride for Neville and his grandmother when he stood up for Harry. Agreed. And I gave mine to Hufflepuff Ernie McMillan, who Harry, during Umbridge's speech, he's looking around, seeing nobody smiling. He sees Ernie McMillan, it says, he was one of the few still staring at Professor Umbridge, but he was glassy-eyed, and Harry was sure he was only pretending to listen in an attempt to live up to the new prefect's badge gleaming on his chest. So Ernie McMillan is powering through, trying not to fall asleep and make a scene, and he <laughs> succeeds. So yeah. Ernie McMillan is all of us (laughs) trying to be responsible. Time now for Rename the Chapter. I went with Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 11, Defense Against the Dark Arts, Take 5. (laughs) I went with Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 11. Hey, teacher, leave them kids alone. (laughs) Nice. Do we have the audio? We don't need no education. I love that. I went with Order of the Phoenix, uh, Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix, Chapter 11, Convenient Passwords. We learned that (laughs) this year's password is Neville's. (laughs) Okay. There are not many times in the series where you can call J.K. Rowling a lazy writer. (laughs) This is definitely one of them. Because Harry doesn't know the password. Who's going to save him? Oh, it's Neville. Neville, what's the password? Oh, you know how last chapter I told you I got Mimbulus Mimbletonia? It turns out it's Mimbulus Mimbletonia. <laughs> what is up with that? Wow. And, and by the way, a quick J.K. Rowling update, because I know we've been talking about how she's uh, absent from Twitter. Uh, she was in New York this week. Receiving an award. Did you say hi? I did not, but actually somebody I work with came up to me yesterday and they told me, hey, I was at this... Uh, gala last night and jk rowling was there and she had a picture with jk rowling I'm like oh nice could you have taken me as your plus one what the f- <laughs> could have given her a muggle cast bookmark and a tote bag and a mug <laughs> yep <laughs> we should send her a care package of all those things see what we should <laughs> but at least we know she's alive so <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's good finally harry potter and the order of the phoenix Chapter 11, Happy Little Faces. Ugh. That just made me... (laughs) Is that Mickey Mouse? (laughs) Cross between Mickey Mouse and Umbridge. If you have any feedback about today's chapter discussion, we would love to hear from you. Email us, mugglecast at gmail.com, or use the contact form 
at mugglecast.com. And you can also send us a voice memo so we can hear you. Just email it to mugglecast at gmail.com or call us 1920-3-MUGGLE. That's 1920-368-4453. And it's time for Quizich. Last week's question, who is the first person sorted into Gryffindor in Harry's fifth year? The answer, of course, because the sorting hat in the books is alphabetical. The answer is Ewan Abercrombie or Abercrombie, comma, Ewan. 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 <laughs> Where was the, that from? Uh, I feel like. Mm, oh, maybe like Game of Thrones? Yeah, Sounds maybe. Thronesy. There's like Master Ewan and, or Lewin. I, I'm confused. Um, but uh, anyway, correct answers were submitted by Sarah, aka Weensy, Lara Catherine, Count Ravioli, Harry Potter Fan Zone participated, HPFZ. Excuse me? I H- love Andy. Yeah. He's playing yeah. now? Wow. Here, yeah. They they got in on the action. That was nuts. Yeah, how um, was Andy? Presumably I don't pretty know. good. I actually hear from him from time to time. Yeah. Seems like he's doing all right. Hey Andy. Hey Harry Potter fan zone. How's it going? Um you and the Quidditch player, Lightning McJingles, Amber Forrester, Pronvi, Jason, and Marie, as well as others. Um thank you to all who submitted. And actually we can't do a Quizich this week because there's uh, our next episode's recording in 30 minutes. So uh, there's going to be <laughs> no enough. no opportunity for people. It wouldn't be fair to hold another Quidditch round, Quizich round. So there will be one on next week's episode, but there's not actually a next week's question this time. Ah, okay. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. Yes. Next week is our big decade in review for the Harry Potter fandom. We're going to be reliving the biggest moments in fandom from the past 10 years. It's interesting. The decade began with the final two Harry Potter movies, and it ended with the first two Fantastic Beast movies. And it's really been a decade of transition in the Wizarding World. So we're going to talk about everything that has happened. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a great way to end the year and um, do you guys know that MuggleCast ended and came back in the past decade? So it's been very eventful for us as well. <laughs> yeah, it only took what, like one episode, wasn't? Did we end and then we were back like two weeks later? It, it was literally two weeks after yeah. we ended MuggleCast <laughs> that J.K. Rowling announced Fantastic Beasts. We would love your support on Patreon. It is what keeps this show going. We are weekly because of our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash MuggleCast is where you can pledge. And in return, you will receive instant access to lots of benefits, including bonus MuggleCast. You will be able to also tune in as we are recording our live streams. You will get ad-free MuggleCast. You will get access to our show notes and a whole lot more. We will be announcing new benefits in the new year. So stay tuned, including our annual physical gift. And while we may not announce that one for a few months, we can tell you it's going to be a good one because 2020 is MuggleCast's 15th anniversary. So we're (gasps) very excited. That makes me feel so old. MC15, (laughs) baby. It almost rhymes. Hashtag it. I love it. So thank you to everybody, whether or not you are a Patreon supporter. We really appreciate that you listen to us, that you support us through following us, through listening to us, and maybe even pledging. So thank you, thank you, thank you. We are so grateful that you are a part of our lives, and we hope uh, we've been giving you lots of joy over the past 15 years. So with that, thank you, everybody, for listening to this week's episode. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. Goodbye. Bye. Bye. Bye.